Jones. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Life, life Well, we are really, really lucky today to have our next guest on. Um, I'll introduce him in just a minute. But before I do, I want to uh, welcome my colleague and partner in crime here, Suna LeMay. Um, Suna heads up our Atlanta operations at Portal Innovations. Um, she's an entrepreneur, and she's also uh, trained academically on both sciences and business with her uh, scientific degree as well as her, her MBA. Um, so Nakia Malicio, we're so excited to have you here for uh, our podcast today. Um, Nakia is truly a leader. He's uniquely juxtaposing his skills to help researchers commercialize in the sciences. And that's not easy. That's challenging. <laughs> Multifaceted. Um, Malicio received his BA in cognitive science and a master's in education and teaching, learning and educational technology from Ashford, Ashford University before earning his receiving his PhD in clinical psychology, correct? Is that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, from the University of Arizona Global Campus. Um, he's currently a senior research faculty member at Georgia Tech, an adjunct faculty uh, professor at Morehouse School of Medicine, an energy I-Corps instructor, and more. Um, he's leading up uh, many of the med tech innovation elements that are here happening in the Atlanta ecosystem. Uh, he volunteers a lot. He's uh, focused on inclusive tech entrepreneurship through the ITEP program, uh, a mentor at Georgia Tech, ad hoc proposal reviewer at the NSF, and a mentor defense innovation accelerator FedTech at National Security Innovation Network. So you can tell he's got swaths <laughs> of experience that we're so lucky to be able to delve into during this episode. So welcome to Kia. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I think as we kind of set the stage, um, there's a number of topics that we're both excited to get into with you today. Um, but maybe just to set the stage on that, if you could just describe a little bit kind of um, what you're focused on right now, um, I know you have a number of different uh, initiatives underway, but if you could kind of talk about the, the main, uh, you know, what, what, what's your main focus right now and where, uh, where are you spending most of your time across those different elements of, at the end of the day, trying to focus on helping early innovators commercialize their, their IP? Yeah, yeah. So that's a, that's a really good question. Um, there's been this topic, this theme that I've been speaking on from the latter part of this year going into this year, um, you know, trying to echo this, that we're literally at the intersection of research, economic development, and entrepreneurship, and how all these things intersect together. And so what I've been doing is, is just really trying to figure out how do I close those gaps, right? To what academics are doing in the research labs to what entrepreneurs are doing in their labs and then what does the economy need and what does the ecosystem needs and then how do we close those gaps because oftentimes these these three never really intersect with yeah. each other yeah and so i've been spending time figuring out how do we close those gaps yeah um and lately it's been in the biotech and the life science and the medtech space okay. you know with figuring out how do we get you know some of these advanced therapies advanced medical devices all these things to solve some of these tough challenges that physicians have, healthcare has, and we've got great innovators and entrepreneurs, but then there's an economic piece to it as well. How do we create new sustainable jobs? Mm -hmm. And so just really trying to close those gaps. So that's what's been a lot of my time. Yeah, no, and, and as you kind of have been involved in those activities, it strikes me that you really 
enjoy you know working with the innovator. Can right. you talk a little bit about some of the struggles and opportunities and and joys that go with that um, right. with that process? Yeah, I think some of the biggest struggles is just really getting <laughs> the super smart academic or the super smart entrepreneur to get out of their head and get out of the technology and really begin to empathize with the end users or the people that's buying it. And so sometimes that's often a struggle because it. You know, for them, it's like, well, I know my technology is great and everybody wants it. But mm -hmm. then it's like, well, who's really going to use it and pay for it? Right. And so getting them to a place of being able to just empathize and just mm -hmm. come down a little bit from the technology aspect and just really say, OK, how does that really what I'm doing? How does that really impact the people that I'm designing this for? Um, and get them to really start to think from that perspective. And so I'm really big on human design thinking, okay. users design thinking and all those things. And so those are some of the challenges, getting entrepreneurs to kind of back off the, the technology horse and uh, empathize with the end user. Yeah, in so many ways, you know, uh, no one knows that technology better than that individual. Right. And right. they're so deep. And in many cases, it right. could be 15 to 20 years worth of work. <laughs> right. So no one knows it better than exactly. that individual. Um, and I think sometimes there's a presumption uh, by that individual that by knowing it so well, mm -hmm. that that automatically means that it should get commercialized and right. it should, we should just be able to do that. Right. Right. <laughs> and exactly. money should just be coming in and I can exactly. take, you know, and, and it's just going to uh, fly, fly forward right. from here. And we know that that's really just the very early beginning uh, <laughs> right. stages of exactly. another part of the of right. the uh, you know the relay race that right. goes where you're passing baton off now right. to just the very early days of getting a company off the ground to move forward. Right. One of one of the things that you're involved in is the I-Corps program, mm -hmm. and so I would imagine a lot of the principles mm -hmm. that go with the I-Corps program, customer discovery, right. and all those kinds of things. Do you find that? With those types of faculty being involved in a program like that, that it's easier to have those communications with them. They maybe understand the language a little bit better. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I will tell you this: um, you know, I'm one of the National Science Foundation's national instructors for that, and I get a chance to literally see some of the new cutting edge things coming out of universities across the country. And I always love when faculty come in with the sense of I know it all, and then they realize that hold up this working in my lab in this bioreactor and then doing this at scale in industry are very different right. things. And to see them really just come down a little bit mm -hmm. and just realize, okay, I don't know as much as I thought I knew, right? Mm -hmm. And then to actually come back to their universities and say, okay, here's what industry says and here's how I need to reform or reshape my research and my approach about that process um, so that I can make sure that I'm building solutions that has a seamless transfer process from my lab into industry. And have you found kind of in that through those uh, journeys and countless interactions with uh, a range of different types of faculty, are there any core characteristics or principles, you know, of a faculty member who kind of was was a star through the process, meaning they right. learned and they adapted, they listened, they built team, et cetera. And any examples like that, or maybe maybe even just high level, what, what characteristics right. led to success and what characteristics created barriers that didn't lead to success. Right. Yeah. So there, there's this thing we call observational um, customer discovery, where you actually get a chance to see firsthand the impact of a technology, of a solution, of a new therapeutic or a new drug that impacts someone's life. Um, and to actually go into where they're providing treatment or someone's kind of like on their deathbed, so to speak, and to actually see the solutions that are being worked in labs and people to actually get better and to see the entrepreneur or the 
principal investigator see that firsthand, um, it does something to them emotionally. And we've had some entrepreneurs that go through the i program that has an office hour says, you know, I had no idea the magnitude of how important my work is. And then they automatically have that emotional connection and they leave with, I need to know more about business. Yeah. Um, I need to better understand the business of the science, the science side of business um, and how to actually go about that process. So, yeah, you do see some of that transformative stuff that actually happens. And, uh, you know, I think just exposure mm-hmm. as early as possible to those real world right. market realities, <laughs> right, um, right, the, exactly. the more it informs an individual as to how they can then shape right. their science. I mean, I've always yep. said kind of the <laughs> that first year of life is critical. You right. can't really uh, teach for success, Mm-mm. but you can create the conditions where you've maybe ruled out obvious Correct. things that would create failure in Correct. that first year of life. Correct. And there's a lot more moldability in that first year of Correct. life that if you learn right. something from the market, right. you can. it's still you know kind of uh, wet, wet cement that you can move and shape into something that has infinitely more opportunity to, to get right. funding and ultimately right. you know get to that that uh, innovator's goal, which is ultimately they're right. all trying to get this product to solve a problem and <laughs> right. help a patient or whatever the case exactly. might be. Yeah, I told some entrepreneurs the other day, um, this is over at Emory at the, where we were, with the, the, yep. the event. Um, and um, I told them, I said, you know, you're not smarter than a disease, you know? So you always have to be on your game, right? And you always have to be at least right close to it or a step above it if you're really gonna solve these deep problems we have, right? Um, and so that arrogance is going to be the Achilles heel for us really truly innovating. Mm-hmm. And so I try to drill that into the innovator's head that it's important that in this process, it's a privilege you get to do the work, but more importantly, make sure you have humility mm-hmm. um, in in the in the process yeah. um, while you're doing it. Well, I'm, I don't want to hog the conversation. I'm going to flip sure. it to Suna, but I have one more kind of follow-on question. Sure. As you think about kind of your role in this the national landscape, especially with the you know being the uh, national I Corps mm-hmm. uh, mentor and, and and part of that team, um, you get a chance to see things from all around the country. I would imagine. Is there any? element uh, or observation that you have around uh, more more successful uh, ecosystems or institutions that you work with and characteristics that lead to better translation. I mean, this is right. a hot topic for right. any great research institution today because right. economics are so important for right. translations becoming more and more important, I think, to the economic underpinnings of these universities right. as grant fundings come right. down and connection to the industry becomes more important. Right. But do you see, uh, you know, there, there's a range of expertise and experience across the different institutions. Some are young and learning right. and accelerating. Some have been doing it for a long time. Right. Are there, uh, is there a key uh, couple of points that make a great research institution that has a higher propensity for translation? Yeah, so universities that, much like here at Georgia Tech, where there is a very rich entrepreneurship ecosystem and and, and it's known in every corners of Georgia Tech, right? Mm-hmm. That here, if you want to be an entrepreneur, be an academic, you know, it's a great place and a great environment for you to be. What I see that universities that do that really, really well, and they balance out the tenure versus the creativity versus the innovation, and they give them the opportunity to play in both of those worlds, that's where you see great innovation, right? Mm-hmm. Where they're not chained to their lab, but they're but they're set free to not only 
innovate and research and do research, but they're able to be set free to be entrepreneurs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think creating that culture of co-creation is the thing that where everything from the president's from the top all the way down, right? And creating that culture. And so there are ecosystems, obviously, we know them, San Francisco, Boston, sure, sure. and you know, in North Carolina, all these ecosystems that have very strong um, ecosystems. But the thing that, that with that is, is they have a good understanding between the entrepreneurship piece and the research piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and then making sure that they're providing faculty with the resources they need to be able to play in both of those arenas mm-hmm. um, without jeopardizing responsibilities to their grants and into their universities and their teaching obligations mm-hmm. um, because that entrepreneurship piece is is the critical key piece um, if we're going to improve that translation piece um, and then giving them the resources to understand what that translation looks like right how do you begin to step by step move that from a lab to market whether you're the entrepreneur or someone else is like do you think it's um, you kind of spoke to this before when mm-hmm. you're you're talking about hey let's make sure that people are getting the bigger picture and what right. their impact could be. Do you think being in the higher education space that it the way we're moving and the types of talent coming into the universities and their goals changing and how, do you think it's a requirement now to get some kind of business perspective into these curricula or just right. like the opportunity to really understand that as you're also strengthening your muscle in the right. technical side? Like <laughs> right. how, do you, how do you see that changing within higher education and then yeah, so you know, it's it's almost like the thing with bedside doctor with, when doctors were like required to go through bedside manners, right? Mm-hmm. To really understand instead of oh, you've got cancer, great, I'll see you next week, you know. <laughs> and so instead of you know, it, it's sitting down and talking and, and understanding how to empathize, uh, you're going to see from my perspective a a younger faculty member that's going to come into a, a university setting, and that's going to be some of the things that's going to be a requirement for them. Mm-hmm. Um, can I innovate? Do I have freedom to do that? Is there an entrepreneurship community and ecosystem? Do you have the experts to help me to be a good entrepreneur, but also how to be a, a good faculty member? How do I play in both of those worlds? I think that a lot of the things that we do, I get traditionally there's standards that universities have to meet and all those things, and I get that. But if we really want to catch up to the rest of the world and be the leader in innovation and science, we have to create the inclusive environments for faculty and rewrite some of the rules in terms of what that looks like for faculty going forward. Um, because then you'll get someone, because not everybody that gets a PhD wants to teach, right? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. they want to you know learn the processes and be good investigators. I think folks that understand the principles behind how to do research make great entrepreneurs mm-hmm. when you give them the right environment and right context mm-hmm. in how to innovate. Yeah, and, and I think um, it, this is beginning to change, um, but the kind of the, the, the ivory tower mentality, the academic kind of um, way of doing things right. was, you know, um, almost kind of looked uh, askance at the concept that how do you kind of have this healthy balance between, yeah, we want that innovator to be able to, you know, move their idea downstream. But the reality is, you know, the the, the prior generation of faculty was very focused on the way academic institutions were funded, you know, right. government grants and really focused right. on, you know, continuing to to be focused really around uh, publications. And, 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 and what when we dug deeper with some of the work we did at the University of Chicago in trying to create that environment was we, we, we try to debunk 
that scenario that, l- listen, it's not likely that you're going to find that that individual um, that is entrepreneurial is is any less effective at being a good um academician right. or a good you know uh, professor right. in fact when we dug into the data it was those uh, faculty that were the best published in science nature right. and cell <laughs> and they were the right. most prolific at starting companies that right. commercialized or could create yep. intellectual property yep. and I think that's now a, a transformation yep. and you see one observation that I've made as well too is that Every one of these top research institutions are beginning to really think about, well, who are they bringing in at the right. top? Right. And more often than not, the phenotype at the top right. is going is more entrepreneurial. They, right. in many cases, they they have a company or they started a company. <laughs> right. uh, you know, the, the new um, president of Rice, the new president mm-hmm. of uh, University of Chicago. You know, the, um, you look at you know, you've got a chief commercialization officer here, so that's a different type of construct right. that was unfamiliar, and I think. It's it's a healthy right. movement, I right. think, in the sense that you're making good on this idea of, you know, that young faculty member, when he comes, right. he expects these things, or she expects these things, right. and they're driven by impact. They want to publish a paper, but they want to yeah. cure a patient, too. Right. Yeah, you think about it. I mean, when you think about, we've got some real hard numbers as a, as a global community in like 2030, 2035, 2040, 2050, in terms of food scarcity, in terms of you know diseases that we haven't even heard of that are gonna be created, right? And so if everything is only housed in this university setting, then if we don't have faculty that think like entrepreneurs, the only way to scale these treatments or outcomes is being an entrepreneur. You know, universities can't do that, right? Mm-hmm. And when I say diseases that we never even heard of, because there will be some new things sure. that will arrive mm-hmm, that we never heard of before, right? And then it would be like, how do we deal with this? Mm -hmm. COVID, I think COVID was a blessing and a curse. I Mm -hmm. think COVID said, hey, we can get new things out in a safe and a fast way. Mm -hmm. We have the intelligence and the mechanisms to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But more importantly, is regulations a bottleneck for innovation, right? And so there's got to be hard conversations with policymakers, universities, entrepreneurs, and government. And how do we create language that gives people the comfort to say, here's the boundaries, but you do have freedom to be creative? Yeah. Yeah. And that's that also in providing that transparency mm-hmm. that also then attracts capital, right? right? Capital right. likes to kind of know exactly. what it's betting on and what it's investing exactly. in. That clarity <laughs> is really becomes really important. I think the the one question that I was going to kind of transition to uh, was really d- diving a little bit deeper around your journey, kind of what right. what got you into it in the first place. So I mean, you've, oh you 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 kind of went through an <laughs> academic path. You right. know, you're uh, you can just I mean, you're a teacher, and you, you, <laughs> right. you, you, you're it's it's built into your your right. your DNA. I can tell as well as your training. But if you could just <laughs> talk a little bit about what what triggered your uh, you know beginning and getting down the path that ultimately led you to today. Yeah, so I've always had that entrepreneur bug. You know, the running joke, you know, all the people who grew up with me, I used to go to the local bodega, buy a pack of noun laters, come to school, and I was always that entrepreneur. So it was just selling stuff to kids. But I was always, I loved to learn. And my first job out of college is I was a biology teacher at Annapolis Road Middle School. And 
and just just you know and, and i think it was just you know that first job you know it was like okay i don't know if i really want to do this mm-hmm. but my mom used to always say you're an educator a teacher at heart but i love to learn i love science i love math i was good at these things mm-hmm. but i never really could figure out the pathway to how do i scale those things and in, in something to be that i enjoy doing yeah. um and so went into high level consulting started some businesses had a couple businesses um and this theme of science and math and all this stuff just kept coming out, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've always kept finding myself in doing work with the Department of Defense or doing work in these arenas. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I was like, okay, let me pay attention to these signs and themes that were coming up in my life. Um, and so that was the the transformative thing for me. And then I had a really bad accident in my early 20s that had left me partially paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And I had to move home um, with my mom. Mm-hmm. and. That downtime was the moment that I was like, it was clear as day what my path should have been or should be mm-hmm. going forward. Um, and it was the education, the training, this entrepreneurship route. You know, there are, there are doers and teachers. I think I straddle between both, but mm-hmm. I think the strength is in the teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, the strength is in the helping people navigate the mm-hmm. how yeah. um, and and understand the why behind yeah. all of that. And so my path, just like I just, just, I just followed the themes in my life. It just led to this person that said, hey, you should do this. And I did this. And, yeah. you know, so it was very natural. I wish I could say that there was like, I sat down and planned it out. This <laughs> is the direction I'm going to yeah. go, yeah. you know. But, you know, my mother used to always tell me, you know, boy, do what you have to do so you get to do what you want to do. So yeah. academics was always the thing that was important. Sure. You know, I had a bit of a derail because of, you know, being paralyzed for the that accident. for sure. about two years. Wow. Um, and, and once that, but that changed my whole perspective. Sure. And so yeah. I am big on empathy and huh. service and support. Yeah. Um, and I know sometimes people never understand the why or the drive. Um, but when you are in a situation that where you need that healing or need that direction or you need that guidance, it takes on a different perspective. And so for me, um, it's always, my motto is the answer is always yes and I'll figure out the rest. Um, and so service to me is above all the greatest things and and being in that position to support and serve has, has literally been the guiding light to my path and all the things that I found myself involved in. You've mentioned your mother a few times, so yeah. I can tell she was an influence on oh, your, yeah, on your pathway as well. Oh yeah, she is definitely a major, major influence. <laughs> she was a nurse. So, so I first firsthand seeing healthcare, she would work 40, 50 hour weeks, come home smiling, and here's her son laying in the bed paralyzed, Mm -hmm. and she'd still, um, you know, take care of me. And you never complained. And I was like, how dare I live a life of selfishness? Mm. And this person is giving me everything. And so, yeah, so that was just a very... um, transformative moment. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, you know, one thing I, it's not exactly the same scenario, but the, the, the conditions for, I think, great success and creativity and therefore kind of innovation arise under, under crisis. Right. right? And, 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 and and where you just have to go all in. And in your case, it probably was, you know, uh, you're probably chomping at the bit in some regards, you know, over that, you know, course of healing. Right. Uh, But the transformation that you went through and that you've described, um, some of it came from, you know, it seems that you got to go in this direction. You know, you were going to burn the boats, you're (laughs) going to go in this direction. Exactly. And what what element or what do you do you agree with that as Mm -hmm. kind of a key principle in certain cases for defining success or failure. And maybe I'll, I'll add one more piece of context to it. Mm-hmm. So 
And it can be particularly true with academic translation. So, you know, oftentimes that great idea comes from the faculty member's lab, but they really don't have the time or the aptitude to kind of go full time. It's not like they're going to quit that job and become the CEO. It's probably not even advisable that they do that. But, you know, for for an idea to really get to the market, someone needs to go all in on it. And if you're not all in, then the odds of success, if it, then it's just a hobby. Right. And if it's just a hobby, it just will never, because there's just so many hard, bad <laughs> right. days that pop up right. along the way. So right. I know I throw through a lot in there, but no, it's okay. you know, it's just okay. this whole concept of how important is it to kind of be in that scenario where um, you got to go all in. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, for me, it starts with this. There are, there are themes that happen in our life. And I always believe that people are in two places. Either you're being taught or you're teaching. And you need to discern which one you're in really quick. And then listen to those themes. And sometimes those themes may say, yeah, I know you wanna do this faculty job, but I think you're better as an entrepreneur over here, right? And I think that the confidence piece needs to happen where, yeah, they want comfort, but I think we owe it as a country to these innovators to provide a funding mechanism to support them while they're going through that ideal and that transition. Mm. And I think that that will make, you will be surprised how many faculty members will take the leap if they knew that they had two or three years yep. of financial support yep. um, to innovate mm-hmm. and then had the ability to come back to their job, yeah. right? Yeah. You'd be surprised that innovation that will actually happen yeah. if we allow that, if we create those mechanisms. But I think the thing when I hear from faculty is, is in my experience in working with them, is that comfort level. They want to take the leap, but they don't know how to go about doing that. Or they're just not aware of of all the opportunities that are there for them, or they're just afraid to just, because they don't they don't want to lose their job, or uh, let's be honest, it's a bit of a narcissistic thing too. Hey, I am Mr. So-and-so at Harvard, you know, and yeah. how dare I leave this post, you yeah. know, and so there's a bit of a pride thing there too. Yeah. But I think if they can get past all of that mm-hmm. and listen to the themes in their life mm-hmm. and saying, hey, you better show up in the world mm-hmm. if you go do this thing mm-hmm. and go work here mm-hmm and go build this, yeah. then the world will be much better. If everybody can just slow down enough and just listen to those themes, yeah. um, then it'll make sense. Who cares what people think? Who cares yeah. whether they understand your drive or your thought? Um, you know, I'm focused like that personally, yeah. um, where I know my mission, I know my purpose, mm-hmm. I know what, you know, my my intent is to provoke and interrogate and antagonize every entrepreneur, every mm-hmm. researcher, until you get to that place of true innovation. And I think that if every a faculty member or entrepreneur can can surrender to those those themes in their life, I think their decisions will be a little easier. Talk a little bit about your assessment, because you've had the chance to kind of be in several mm-hmm. ecosystems, North Carolina in particular. Um, I know that you've you know, spent quite a bit of time mm-hmm. um, and even still do in, in that particular mm-hmm. uh, ecosystem. Can you describe your assessment of kind of Atlanta and the mm-hmm. Georgia Southeastern life sciences ecosystem and where where does it sit today and where do you think it has the potential to go to? Yeah, Atlanta is poised to really disrupt and rewrite a lot of things that these well-established ecosystems um, already have established. They've got their set of cast of characters in each of these ecosystems. We probably can point each one of them out from investors to entrepreneurs to incubators in each of these ecosystems. Atlanta has a bit of a difference, a different narrative because not only are we the, the cradle of civil rights and not only we are an extremely diverse city, we've got 
entrepreneurs that have the ability to innovate and innovate in a way that is cross collaboration with HBCUs that mm-hmm. are connected mm-hmm. here, like Morehouse School of Medicine. Yep. And when we start talking about disparity and diverse population, diversity in health and health deserts, um, we have a unique w- uh, position to address life science and medical device from a different perspective, right? And then when you think, when you add the fact that we're the home of Delta and all these other places that we're logistically, we can collaborate across the globe at a direct flight. So there's so many different things that that Atlanta has. Um, The cost of living Mm -hmm. is good here. Um, I think those are some of the things, but I think what needs to happen here is obviously space, mm-hmm. wet labs, mm-hmm. all those things for these type of entrepreneurs to be able to create and innovate here. Um, and then the capital has to be here. Um, the programming has to be here to be able to support them um, in that capacity and then get collaborations amongst these universities and create some type of consortium on what are all the best and brightest of innovations in our ecosystems, Emory, Morehouse, all of it. And then how do we collectively pull it all together to say, okay, what is the thing that we want to be known for um, here in Atlanta? What do we want to be known for? Whether it's biomanufacturing, whatever it is that we want to be known for, and then create an ecosystem and an economy around that. Um, There's obviously, we have a long way to go. We're heading in the right direction. We've got every single thing all these other ecosystems have. Mm-hmm. We just need the confidence mm-hmm. of external investors, external ecosystem players, and create the environment to attract entrepreneurs here, to build here, to innovate here, to create jobs here, all those different things. Um, and, and giving voices to those that uh, typically don't. Yeah. I think that not serving Morehouse School of Medicine and pulling the things in there, what they do is a disjustice to the life science ecosystem mm. because there are some lot of cool things happening yeah. over there at Morehouse School of Medicine. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, so I mean, just it, it seems like the recurring theme here is like, can we put into the structure and the development of this life science ecosystem like a freedom to operate right. and really to just create? And you know, right. of course, Capital is always going to be central to that, but then also just the natural support and collaboration that we can provide as an ecosystem. And you did touch upon like um, Morehouse School of Medicine and how that's going to impact the the purview or the perspective and the insights that they can collaborate with some of the other university Mm -hmm. and institutions. But what do you see as like the... um, the impact to innovation and and the innovation areas in which you can see Atlanta really standing out because I have my I have my uh, yeah. predictions but <laughs> yeah we, we we can't be like you ever go to a daycare center and you see that hot toy in the corner and and all the kids see it and everybody runs to it like who's gonna get to it first and that mm-hmm. one kid gets it it's like no my toy you're you know and runs off and like I don't want anybody else to play with it right so if you have an idea some new novel solution no novel way of doing things we have to have a repository of, of what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. And so that we can better collaborate um, in that regard. I think that it, it is such, you know, I'm a collaborator, right? And, and and most of the stuff I do is behind the scenes. I'm gonna roll my sleeves up. Let's get the work done. Let's figure out the key players, figure out how do we pull this stuff together. I, I, I think that we're lacking that communication, that coordination. We're lacking that, you know, we've got all these pockets of things happening. Everybody knows that life science is hit. Everybody's looking at Atlanta. What are they gonna do, right? You know, who's gonna emerge? Like what's what's gonna be the emerging thing? We know mm-hmm. FinTech is king here yeah. because World Bank made sure of that, right? Mm-hmm. Who's going to make sure that put their stamp on the life science, say, okay, here's our ecosystem players. And 
this person is good at this, this person is good at that, but how do we all collectively get together to make sure that we're, we're all saying the same narrative, that we all are pushing Atlanta forward, and that we're all doing the best that we can to pull an industry, to pull in everyone that we can, to say, here's what you need to support, here's where this organization is lacking, we need this for this organization, or we need funding from here, right? Pull on Biopharma, pull on all these organizations, say, help support these initiatives as we craft the narrative for our city, um, but but if we don't figure out how to communicate or have some type of life science council that really says, you know, here's what's happening in our city, here's the things that we want to push out, um, and have some way where we're publishing things together, where we're doing these things, where we're creating that ecosystem um, together and, and co-creating, th those are some of the things that I see related to that. We have a, a great example um, oh, right. between, you know, even Georgia Tech and Emory with right. the joint um, biomedical engineering. Right. So it seems right. like, you know, this is a great playground to you know just small enough right. and and momentous enough where we have all this momentum going towards a right. life science to really create right. that and to to really come together right. collaborate effectively right. understand the landscape understand who right. how people play the roles and really just like you said right. move atlanta forward in the life sciences it, right. it, it seems like this it's the best place to do that, no shade to Chicago. <laughs> but, but, but yeah. No, it is. It is literally the best place to do this. I mean, between Georgia Tech, Emory, Morehouse, Georgia State, um, gosh, University of Georgia, Mercer. I mean, we've got an ecosystem here to do this stuff, right? I mean, it's different. We may have a, a little bit of you alls mm -hmm. since we're in the <laughs> South, <laughs> but, but we certainly yeah. can make it happen, right? Yeah. Hey, you all. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no. And again from just from a from from a, a perspective of a person looking at it uh from the standpoint of opportunity mm -hmm. um you know that the narrative to me is uh so much of what's already been painted but right. again reviewing some of the key facts i mean you've got georgia tech with the deep you know roots in engineering and and, and science right. um you've got emory um obviously focused on medicine and mm -hmm. you know the, a rich history and you know anti right. antivirals in particular yep. you've got cdc yep. which is here creating that kind of theme right. you know the um the, the focus around you know, the health you've got global health and and equity and health innovation, um, you've got rich diversity yep. for so many elements of how you build a company yep. um, and how you also might be able to open up new channels, new market opportunities right. that are serving uh, individuals and people that aren't being served right, right. now. <laughs> right. And, and so like those elements to me all form the 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 crucible and the 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 brew if you right. will that is mixing together it's right. mixing together right now more so than it was right. and i think you know to some degree then what what are the triggers that help it kind of ignite to the to the next level what's the catalyst you throw right. into the crucible that kind of get it get it get it going what what are your thoughts on that yeah just more conversations like this mm -hmm. people like you come in and saying you know yeah this is an ecosystem everybody should pay attention to mm -hmm. and and then creating the mechanisms like Portal mm -hmm. and providing access. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, you guys have had sex um, six, uh, successful um, inside of you know Chicago and other areas that you've been in. Mm -hmm. And how do we activate that community here? Mm -hmm. The other side of the challenges here, when I say it's very rich, if people are uh, very clear, when we look at Atlanta and this region is leading the nation in HIV. STD, 
diabetes, Southeast, all these ailments that are costing healthcare right. so much money. Mm-hmm. You would think that you would want to be close to your customer and innovating near them to help solve some of these deeper problems, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that when you look at the challenges that are happening across, not just in South Carolina or Georgia or Alabama, but just across the Southeast yeah. in general, it's been really deprived mm-hmm. of true health innovation. Now we're taking advantage of all the medication, but we're really deprived. Yeah, there's, there's a, it's a classic case of, right. you know, um, unmet need in the market, right? right, right? And right. unique. And, and I think right. being present in that yep. ecosystem and in that market allows you to be authentic, yep. real, and be able to yep. to deliver. And again, you know, going back to that primary narrative, mm-hmm. you know, the, the contributing forces are not uh, limited to, right. you know, two research institutions right. uh, or, or a CDC. I mean, you've got, um, as you said, the historically black colleges, you've got mm-hmm. Morehouse Medicine, you've got um, Mercer, you've got... Um, you know, uh, Georgia, you've got a, a range, Augusta, you know, you look at all those different, right. you know, Georgia State, I mean, right. cranking out talent, IP. <laughs> so there's, there's scale, there's, right. there's scale. It's not yep. one or two institutions. Yep. And I think that also is part of the diversity yep. story too. It's not just diversity in terms of the people and backgrounds and ethnicity yep. and religions. It's really about functional backgrounds and how, right. and that's really rich, I right. think. Um, and the the interesting feature I think that will be uh, important to watch is you know the notion that convergence will become more and more important across you know computing and its application to right. life sciences. So right. the kind of the the whole as opposed to biotech, it's tech bio. Right. I think Atlanta has a feature of tech yep. bio to it, given the yep. success and scale yep. that's already been achieved in the right. the tech side of things. Right. But that crossing over into yep. you know what's going on in, in right. medicine and, and engineering. I mean, think about it. We've got. I mean, we've got the ability to now to design drugs as opposed to discover drugs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've got one of the best computer science schools in the world here at Georgia Tech, and just thinking of just and and so you don't have to be a biology person to be in life science, right? Mm-hmm. You have some contribution and whatever that contribution is, whether it's you're the AI ML machine learning person that can help create computational models that can help the next innovator, you know, figure out disease patterns and drug development, you know, so there's plenty of innovation here. And and so we can close the gap. And I think that if we continue to innovate next to our customer and the population that's here that desperately needs us, that's the 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 sweet spot or the value as to why Atlanta That's and why this point. ecosystem. Great point. Mm-hmm. And and also not to mention, but it it I just was reading about this earlier. Um, but just the omnibus regulation that's mm-hmm. coming down. So it's not even a question anymore. It's more of just like the advantage that we have <laughs> yeah. by creating this pedigree of technologists right. who are so close to this patient population right. that has to be now acknowledged right. in with the clinical trial process right. and, and regulatory and just like right. the requirements that are coming on board in the mm-hmm. next couple of years. So yeah. it is an advantage to to start innovating. Adjacency, right. geographic adjacency too. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, it's some such things can be done remotely, but some things cannot. <laughs> right. yeah. Exactly. So. Then it becomes a, hey, Eli Lilly, do you want to fund us a billion dollars to help <laughs> us create innovation here to save you a couple billion dollars in paying out, you know, the insurance company? I mean, yeah. it becomes a, a bigger argument that we yeah. can paint to just, you know, again, pull in the mm-hmm. folks to support the initiative. Yeah. 
Yeah. What are uh, kind of back to the 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 psychology of the entrepreneur and kind of the entrepreneurs can come in all shapes and sizes. Doesn't right. have to come from academia. We're right. just focusing a little bit on life right. sciences, where oftentimes right. it's coming from some you know scientific right. mind. Um, if you, if you think about the programs that currently exist uh, here in Atlanta, um, where do you think we're strong, and where do you think there's opportunity for kind of filling in some gaps around programs for kind of early stage innovation, but then also kind of the next the next level up? Yeah, so I would be remiss if I don't make a shameless plug on the MedTech Center. Let's try. <laughs> <I> know. <laughs> you know, so you know, I saw a gap in our programming and with the MedTech Center of Excellence, I saw a gap. I've looked at every program that you can think of from Indie Bio to Mass Challenge across Mm -hmm. the country Mm -hmm. and how everyone is doing programming and how everyone is building these companies. And most of what I see a lot of these programs, their design is deal flow, where find an entrepreneur that's close enough, let's give them a little money and we'll throw it on the wall. And if it works, hopefully they'll work and then we'll make some investment, right? Mm -hmm. Very little are taking this surgical, intentional pathway Mm -hmm. of really working with an entrepreneur. Everything from the first time they think about the idea to every blind spot that they will see and surgically walking them through, what does it look like from that event that molecule out of the lab mm-hmm. all the way to its full stage of commercialization every single step of the way and walking them through that and giving them the confidence of that. And so what I've created was a whole new programming called Scale-Up Lab to address okay. those pathways um, that addresses everything from the regulatory to the payment aspect. What does that look like? How do you position yourself to, put, to pursue that? If you need to begin the process of justifying your technology to petition for new CPT codes to you know get it you know, where it can be built for insurance, all these things that mm. entrepreneurs don't get in traditional accelerators. It's just a uh, black box. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mystery yeah. uh, when that first, especially for a first time right. entrepreneur who's right. being told maybe in the right. i program, hey, <laughs> right. you really got to work, uh, figure out, talk to payers. Right, right. Well, what's a payer? I mean, right, right. Some, I mean, it's <laughs> exactly. that basic sometimes right, in that right. first, that right. first journey. And again, that if we're biasing against a first time entrepreneur right. who may have that billion dollar break breakthrough, right. who may be that unicorn, mm-hmm. right. you know, is not, uh, we have to create the conditions so that we're creating options that are entering into the system right. that may be being brought forward or stewarded by less experienced people, right. but no less worthy of an opportunity to get right. that product to market. But right. but without your program, don't right. really have the the knowledge. You know, you, you you're you're kind of. Um, spotlighting the pathway, mm-hmm. you know, from where it's leaving the lab and onto the, you know, right. <laughs> getting right. to the patient at some point right. in the future. Right. Everything from needs finding to patient identification all the way out the door, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in that in that process. I think that, you know, I I'm a firm believer that unicorns are not discovered, but they're designed and they're built. Mm-hmm. And if you show them a pathway on how to build a unicorn, um, and 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 it is grueling but if you show them the pathway and show them how you get here, um, you know we can crank out some really profitable, worthy invested type companies if we build them the right way. 
I just think some of these accelerators are not building companies the right way and mm -hmm. makes it a very difficult call for investors to have to pick, well, who's the real winner here, right? Mm -hmm. Because we can't be excited about the technology because there's someone else smarter than you. And once they figure out the process, the pathway, they can innovate better than you. And if they got more money faster than you, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to figure out, well, what is the differentiator between you and them and the thing that they didn't think about, right? Mm -hmm. Or if you've got some new proprietary you know, cell line or some new proprietary drug or something like, how do we get you to get a BLA to protect that, right? And just think through the things to move you forward to be successful from a business standpoint and just really helping them think through the whole landscape. Um, and, and I haven't seen many accelerators that are really focused on doing that. And it's not to say there are not good accelerators out there. It's just to say that even if you have someone that as the, at the conception stage, because MedTech works from all the way from beginning, all the way to if you got $100 million, mm -hmm. you know, that's the way the programming and everything is designed to support them in that regard. That's excellent. Yeah. And it sure seems like uh, you've woven in your um, proclivity for human-centered mm -hmm. design mm -hmm. into into the way that you conceive that that yep. program. Yep. I mean, really looking at you know what's what what's needed, and then who are the almost the ethnographies of the yep. of the people that are yep. kind of about to go through that journey Absolutely. and building a, a designing a program that would really fit that. Absolutely, need. So that's cool. Absolutely, everything from walking through you know here's a disease, you know here's your technology. Let's walk through this with your tech. What does this look like? What stage are you if you're innovation was okay. to try to solve this problem. And, you know, I think that that is, it is a, had been an extremely effective technique because they don't get a chance to typically see that until, unless they're in some med school setting, right. you know, to actually innovate like that. Now, well, we're not in a med school, but I can simulate that learning experience to help them to understand how would they respond or react or, man, we haven't thought about that, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And it seems like, you know, um, you know, one criteria that, that always gets talked about in this like uh, venture investing state is is, you know, coachability. Right. Uh, and so you kind of hint on this. There is this operational development that needs to occur within a mm -hmm. startup. But I'm, I'm very curious to kind of understand uh, from your perspective, the personal and team development that goes behind, like you just mentioned, hey, you, what kind of leader or person or perspective do you have to have at this stage, at this stage, right. and how someone who is coming out with an idea or a solution, how you, how you find they walk through that process with you? Mm. Yeah, so some founders are coachable, some founders are not, right? And I think the ones that are not is, is, is what I've found sometimes is, they're afraid of something, right? Or or afraid of being found out about something about them that that they don't have the confidence or have it all together that they thought they did, right? And I'm just like, hey, listen, I'm a mess, you're a mess. Okay, let's all get it out, right? Let's all figure out how to do this together, right? From a coaching perspective. I will be an advocate for you, but I need your support in that. And so in my coaching process, I try to cultivate the environment that we're co-creators here, right? You know, you've got a set of skills, I have a set of skills, and my set of skills is to help you identify blind spots and put context to what you're trying to do, right? And some founders are receptive to that, and sometimes it takes time to get them to that place. But what I've also found, I had to tell a founder this other day, I said, listen, if you're gonna raise money, you under no circumstance can need, cannot be the CEO. You need to let your investors know uh -oh. that you're looking for someone else because you're not the kind of money you're talking about raising 
and in the market you're talking about going into, you, you don't have the maturity to handle that. You don't have the bandwidth to handle that, right? Or the context at all. And so sometimes it's having those conversations with them and saying that they, they won't ever be there, but then, okay, if I tore you down in that capacity, now how do I build you up? Say, so how do we begin a process to get you to being that good CEO if you wanna be that? And so sometimes it's just really doing self-assessments. Let's just sit down and talk about where you are, right? Um, and, and talk about some of the challenges you're struggling. And all coaching sessions is not all about tech sometimes, right? It's talking about what you're feeling sometimes or how you're feeling about being an entrepreneur or you know, how are you feeling about why you're doing this? And, and so sometimes these coaching sessions take on a whole different light. Um, and once you go down that path with them, then you really start to unpack what are the real challenges and issues with them. Um, so, you know, I pay a little bit of psychology in their head, yeah. you know, and I tell them like, I'm in your head before you even know I'm in your head, right? yeah, no, <laughs> you know? And so, and just helping them navigate through some of those challenges. Yeah. I, I just feel like entrepreneurship in general, it, yeah. I, I, I always say that it's probably the one of the greatest expressions of right. self. So anything right. going on within the team, within the actual founder, co-founders, is going Absolutely. to be reflected in in the success or hurdles experienced by. Yeah, especially Absolutely. in those really early days. I mean, entrepreneur, it's a lonely journey as we all know. Right. And it's very personal in the beginning too, right. because you kind of, you, you are the company, you are right. the idea, you are then yep. therefore the company. Yep. Um, but you know, the, the the trick is, you know, can you uh, over time evolve so that you're a, you're a part of the story? You mm -hmm. you aren't the company, and, and you have to recognize that with future investors. Again, right. in your scenario with the person that you're uh, mentoring around, maybe they're not the right CEO at this time. Maybe for the future, right. um, but not not for this round. So right. so being able to evolve so that. Um, yes, the, the back to the the point around the company's only going to succeed if <laughs> right. you've got that person who's all in, <laughs> right. and it's usually that person. It's <laughs> right. their idea. Yeah. It's their baby. Right. Right. But on the other hand, the trick is: can you somehow start to let go right. as the entrepreneur right. and let others in? Right carry some of the burden, distribute some of the responsibility so that you can scale. Because if right. you can't, you'll be found out pretty quickly right. because the investor won't put the money in and, right. and and you won't be able to kind of move that, you know, idea downstream. It seems yeah. it, it, it seems to me as you look at uh, and analyze kind of the the psychology. But that's really hard. I mean that's why entrepreneurship really is a hard thing because like on one hand, you need to be all in and you need to be that person yeah. and you need to love it and you need to be it. Right. And then but you then you need to kind of give it up away. a little bit sometimes is, too. Right. That's oh. hard. And then what? Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, we all have that syndrome, you know, yeah. this is my baby and I want to, you know, I mean, we go through these tough growing pains, you know, I go through these tough growing pains and I think sometimes for me, the thing that I try to, you know, give them is it's okay to let go sometimes. Right. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and I tell them, you got to build with the end in mind and every decision you make, should reflect that. And if the decision today is I need to let someone else be the CEO because I'm thinking about the end goal here and and you know you know and always say okay what are we doing here? Are we building a company because we're just going to build a company we're going to run it 40 years and we're going to retire or are we building something that we're trying to get it acquired? Are we building something that we're trying to So all these are fundamentally different mm -hmm. pathways and fundamentally different fundraising pathways, mm -hmm. right? And so what we have to do is just really figure out what are we doing here? Mm -hmm. And then we can then put the cast of characters 
around that uh, that vision. Back to design again. Back to design right? yeah. again. Well, um, you know, one of the things that I'm curious about is, you know, you're involved um, in a number of activities, as mm-hmm. we've talked about. Um, how do you keep a balance? I mean, it's there's a lot uh, to, to, to <laughs> a lot going on, a lot of details on one hand, right. um, but kind of staying up and being able to kind of keep, you know, all the all the balls in the air that, that you're thinking about. I mean, it's, obviously right. there's a common theme and thread that right, we use right. for all of that. <laughs> but right. just, you know, in general, you know, how, how are you able to kind of... Um, keep it all in motion and keep it in front of you. Yeah. You know, one, I absolutely, absolutely love everything that I do, but even in loving something that you do, there still has to be balance. Sometimes I struggle with that balance Mm -hmm. much like everyone else. Sure. My trick. And if you guys tell anybody this, Mm -hmm. I promise you, I will put a copyright on y'all. Is, is I try to work. I try to be two weeks ahead so that I'm never behind. So what I try to do is, is I try to get everything ahead and and so that when I have those days where I just can't do anything, like I have no capacity to think about anything, mm-hmm. then I, that I'm already ahead to do that. Got it. The Achilles heel for me is the email. Yeah. <laughs> um, gosh, if, if anybody has a secret sauce around mm-hmm. that, yeah. um, we'll be in good shape. Other than that, everything, last year, one of the things that, that, that plagued me that I try to be present in every moment, every conversation, because that's important to me. Mm-hmm. And I want the person in front of me to know that you're important and I care about what you're saying. Last year, I lost a bit of that because I was I was running so hard yeah. to the point that where it was like, uh-huh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh, I'm listening and typing yeah. it, you know? And, I, and for me, it's like, I, 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 I can't do that because right. it's not my personality. Yeah. And so I think maybe just slowing down and being present helps me with being able to balance things. Yeah. Um, and being, when I'm there with you, I'm all in on that yeah. conversation. Um, and we're conversing and we're good to go. Figuring out what to say no to so you can keep, that, no keep that authenticity yeah. and connection to that yeah. person. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah and be present. Um, well, one of the things that we're really trying to do with the podcast mm-hmm. is to try to um, – you know, humanize biotech and life sciences and entrepreneurship right. in general. And um, in, in doing that, we're hoping to try to, um, you know, inspire – individuals that may not think that biotech or life sciences is for them. Right. And, uh, you know, but the truth is you don't need to be a scientist to go into biotech. You don't necessarily need to have a PhD to go into biotech. There's, there's so many different needs. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, um, you know, your own journey. And I, and, and again, you know, just talking about diversity, I mean, the challenges and obstacles that you faced, you know, as a black man growing and being successful as an entrepreneur, any words of inspiration or guidance, you know, kind of to the next generation as, as people listen to you and, and are thinking about, and maybe are curious enough to, to, you know, open up a book or read or, or, uh, or download, you know, um, the story of Jim Allison, the Nobel laureate that just, you know, came up with, the, the breakthrough around checkpoint inhibitors that's saving, right. you know, thousands of uh, cancer patients' lives. Right. Um, any advice that, that you would have to that next generation? Yeah, so uh, I'm an avid reader. And if you feed the thing that you're passionate about, for me, it was science, it was math, it was those things that I was passionate about. And I didn't really discover where I am now until I surrendered to what those passions were and began to feed those things and begin to learn and to equip myself, whether it be seminars, reading books, taking a class, just all of those, you know, basic things to help, you know, get the vision going and stir that up um, in that regard. I think the the biggest thing is is that if if you really know what you're called to do, 
everything else is not, I'm not, not going to paint the picture that it's going to be easy because it's not, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that from the perspective of the question that you're asking is, is that each person, again, does not have to be this scientist, this engineer to, to be in this space, right? There's plenty of places that where you can contribute, that where you can innovate, um, that where you can kind of get plugged in. Um, I'm an avid reader. I love to read. Sometimes I'm reading four or five books at a time. I don't mm-hmm. ever finish them all, yeah. but but, mm-hmm. but I'm an avid reader um, mm-hmm. in that regard. Um, I remember a story back when in grade school, and we see this a lot and, and this is an issue, um, particularly in the Latin American, African American community, where you're labeled and automatically put in these classes as if you're not smart, right? Mm-hmm. And and sometimes the parents are single parents and don't even realize that these things happen to their kids. And, and it kills the creativity in that. To give an example, um, everybody remembers the PSAT, you know, mm-hmm. test, the pretest mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. the thing. So... I signed up for to take this test in the seventh grade. Um, you had to be in eighth grade to do it. They wanted to get a gauge of students that were going to be going from eighth to high school to see where they were. I had a teacher. I had moved to a new school. This teacher, you know, I was always really, believe it or not, I was a really quiet to myself kind of kid. I was never that like that out in the streets. It was sports, academics, and home playing video games. I was truly that kid. And so I was always quiet. And so the teacher just assumed that, I didn't know anything or I was stupid because I never said much in class. I did my work, but I was never that engaging kid. So you just assumed that was something wrong with me. Um, I'm not going to call her name. Obviously, she was not. Say her name. It's time. So obviously, she wasn't. She wasn't black. Yeah. And so I um, and so. She said, and they called, made the announcement for the students that were going to take the PSAT. And she's like, well, where are you going? I said, I'm going to take the test. And she's like, well, why? She said, you're in seventh grade. And I said, well, because I signed up to take it and they're going to let me take it. And she's like, well, I don't think the test is for you. I don't think you should take that test. And she said, I don't think that that's for you. She's like, she said, but I'll let you go ahead and go. And she said, just, just, just no, don't be disappointed and this and that. And so... 1260 later um, yeah. as a PSAT <laughs> yeah. out of 1600 at yeah. the time, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. and so at that at that time, you know, and when she heard the results, her whole attitude changed different to it. But I think that there's so many kids, their creativity, school mm-hmm. systems, the way it's set up right now, yeah. we, we need to fuel the creativity of kids and yeah. allow kids to to dream again and to yeah. just, mm-hmm. and to do things and try things and experience things. We need to reimagine our education system in that regard. So the student, the advice that I would give would be Find a place to dream, find a place to create, find a place to innovate, mm-hmm. um, whether that's in a podcast or whether that's in a book mm-hmm. or whether that's with a mentor, because mm-hmm. those are the things that I did. Some of my mentors, I didn't have the opportunity to know them personally, so I had to glean from a distance. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was opportunities that, you know, there's that personal development, meaning you, your person, your emotions and who you are. Then there's that academic side of you and then there's that emotional side of you. You know, you got to feed all of that mm-hmm. if you're going to really learn, grow and be creative. Wow, Nakia. I mean, this has been an amazing <laughs> conversation, um, inspiring. Um, you're you're really lighting up my inner fires to get out there myself and <laughs> read and Perfect. learn and yeah, grow yeah. and develop. <laughs> no, it's exciting. I mean, really. I you know, congratulations well, on you, you know a phenomenal pathway to here. Again, not without challenges. Right, uh, right. You'll, you've overcome many, and not that there won't be challenges that pop up in the future right, as well. Right. But I, I liked your point around you know if you know your if you know your play if you know your place if you know your purpose. Mm-hmm then you just keep kind of soldiering on. And right. that is kind of that 
back to that all in, totally yep. committed, full yep. immersion. Um, keep feeding yourself as you Absolutely. keep the words you, you use. Um, and and so we're very grateful for the conversation yeah. today. Yeah, and and I know our audience will gain a lot from thank the conversation. You. I appreciate the time. <laughs> Thanks great. a lot. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guests today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. Goodbye.